Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to continue on with our part two of Angela Davis's Women, Race, and Class. This is going to cover chapters four to ten, just so you know. So, you know who I am. Like, share, subscribe. Helps me out a lot. Leave a comment on a podcast platform if it allows you to in a review. Help me out a lot. Help me out uh, monetarily if you like, but no pressure to do that. Take care of yourselves first. And yeah, Let's jump into chapter four here, titled Racism in the Woman's Suffrage Movement. So it begins with a letter to, uh, to the news from Elizabeth Stanton, who was a suffragette who criticized black people's elevation within society over that of white women. So echoing this, Henry Beecher advocates white women receiving the right to vote before black men, which scared lots of people. The idea that maybe uh, if suddenly black people were no longer enslaved, that black men would then exceed the position of white women in that society. And so many white women suffrages, suffrages, white women fighting for suffrage for the right to vote were opposed to abolition out of that fear that they would then have to go up against another class of men, that is, black men, who would then just uh, control them like they were being controlled by white men. So many white women after the Civil War had ended believed that they should have attained the right to vote from the Republican Party in the North because they sided with them. They, they were opposed to slavery and they sided with them in the Civil War. However, they didn't receive it. They didn't get the right to vote. And so was revealed the Republican lack of interest in women's equality and that of black people siding instead with northern capitalists. So it was revealed that the northern Republican Party was less interested in elevating the status of white women and black people and more about appeasing their northern capitalist um, industrialists in order to proffer up their industries. So for Davis, this reveals the extent of economic influence over masculine affiliation, black men still couldn't vote. So the idea here being that there wasn't just a boys club where white men saw uh, affiliated with black men, they were more interested in industry and making sure that their industries would grow. And what better way to make industry grow is if you have entire swaths of the population in the form of white women, black women, and black men, not to mention Hispanic people and indigenous people, who are denied opportunities, political opportunities, other opportunities, and who are forced to work for cheap within industry. And it revealed the extent to which that these politicians and these industrialists were all working together, not necessarily in a direct conspiratorial kind of way, but rather their interests aligned. And so they were just acting in ways that benefited them, which happened to benefit the industrialists. But of course, conspiratorially, it was happening as well. Like they were very much aligning their interests, helping this to occur in a very direct, uh, concerted way. Now, even though there wasn't this desire to form this boys club or to draw lines of affiliation between white men and black men, can't deny the effects of sexism here where black men would attain the right to vote more easily way before uh, black women, where black men would have gotten it in the 1870s, and, and it would take much longer for white women and black women to uh, get the right to vote without, without the same kind of barriers. Now, as I said before, 
Obviously, following the end of slavery, black people had their eye on the possibility to vote. You want to have political representation because of the, the horror you'd gone through. I mean, you want to be able to represent your people in a way that is going to break free from these legacies, these histories of oppression, clearly. And white women feared this because they feared that they would then be replaced or they would then be subordinated by black men. And black women would exceed, uh, would, would be their superiors as well, which they feared because they were, in many cases, very racist. And Davis thinks that this is ridiculous, obviously, but she uh, acknowledges that it still took women a lot longer than black men to get the right to vote. She doesn't say that they were right, but it does reveal the extent to which sexism was just entirely ubiquitous in that society at the time, still very much today. So Frederick Douglass advocated for black suffrage because of the violence black people experienced, which was more urgent for him than the experience of oppression that white women experienced. Experience, you experience, experience. Words, words. And so Douglass thought it was more urgent to deal with black women's lack of political representation than white women's, which is too bad. Like, I mean... It's too bad there was this need to hierarchize these movements, but in any case, that was the motivation. Now, throughout all of this, Davis repeatedly says that it was white middle-class women of the bourgeois class who were participating in this oppression, and there were all these lines of affiliation and alliance between working-class women and black women. And this is a common theme throughout this text, where it seems as though for Davis, white working-class women can do no wrong. And later we'll talk about this. She, she goes so far as to say that any example of racism demonstrated by working class people was purely because they were brainwashed into thinking that by the capitalist overlords, because for the capitalists, it helps if your working population hates certain populations within it. It helps keep the cost of labor down and it distracts from, you know, the capitalist exploiting them which is a decent explanation to understand racism among working class people, but it falls short in accounting for the fact that these people were also in lots of cases just very racist. They comprised mobs, they comprised uh, lynching parties against black people that I don't think can just be explained by being brainwashed by capitalists to hate black people. It's possible that these histories precede that and are actually motivated by just racism and not a superficial, in, ingrained or brainwashed racism. Now, because Davis is like hyper-focused on capitalism and capitalists, she goes so far as to say that Frederick Douglass's desire to attain the vote wouldn't do enough to account for capitalist exploitation. It would just be a way to encourage that system because it would just be voting in people who just side with capitalists. So Davis is like, it was almost a waste of time to go for uh, the right to vote, which is a harsh way to say it. It was more like other concerns were more pressing than the right to vote, which like, yeah, probably, but it doesn't downplay how urgent it was to gain the right to vote, or it shouldn't downplay it in any way. And that puts us here in chapter five. The meaning of emancipation according to black women. So following the end of slavery, black people still forced to work in horrendous conditions for nearly nothing. It's not as though slavery ended 
suddenly they were given these huge plots of land, a few goats, and then that's it. Like, apparently in some cases that was legislated, but that wasn't the reality. Many of these people were forced to go and work in exploitative wage-earning jobs because, and capitalists were thrilled about this because suddenly they had a pool of people who were going to work for real cheap that they could, you know, easily exploit and they could earn tons of extra profit. They could extract more and more surplus value from them than their white counterparts. So there was an influx of black people in these industries, which freaked out white working class people. They were like, oh, and they're, they're taking our jobs, which is motivated by uh, racism, not just classism, because white people don't feel the same way when it's white people taking their jobs. They feel this way or another um, racially marked people, uh, they will feel this way. And so it, it reveals the extent to which that racism and uh, and and classism work together yet are separate phenomena really originating from different different like root systems which is a weird analogy or they have different histories and they culminate into a similar thing working together to oppress people now of course at this time the prison system would start to grow and this isn't something that she focuses on in very much detail in this text the, the birth of the prison system. It's something later in her career she'll focus a lot more on. But she doesn't, uh, she, she does. She focuses here a little bit on the prison system as a way to further uh, oppress and to relegate to slavery or to enslave black people. Because law was designed to reflect the interests of white people, suddenly it became very easy to prosecute and to institutionalize or to incarcerate black people who could then be used for cheap, labor essentially slave labor because they wouldn't be paid i don't think or if they were paid it was very 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 little which is just an extension of slavery in the post-slavery era not to mention the threat posed by mobs and the threats of sexual assault against black women and girls at this time like the these threats were very much alive so black women black girls black boys black men forced into industry and also know having to take up domestic tasks primarily for black uh, women and girls having to take up all these these many roles in this apparent this ostensible new freedom so black men too were forced to be domestic servants in uh, the homes of rich white people black people would become synonymous with domestic tasks they would be the ones working in the home and caring for the children of white people White, white people's children, they would take care of the house and the land, even post-slavery. They'd be paid, but like pennies, right? They wouldn't be paid a lot. And this would create a rift as well, because their labor in this Marxist idea of there being productive and unproductive labor would be characterized as being unproductive, which would actually create some animosity among productive workers, which is like, it's just, I <laughs> often struggle with dogmatic Marxist thought, but this is something that I find is often unaccounted for within Marxist circles, where there's this desire to just unify all working class people, as though there will not be animosity between working class people in the way that they each perceive their contribution to this thing called being productive, which will then just create these other divides that need to be accounted for. Uh, otherwise, we just risk perpetuating these cycles, which isn't to say that the movement is not necessary, like the critique of capitalism is not necessary. But 
accounting for these various uh, other possibilities so that cycles of oppression don't continue. So with black people being relegated to these new domestic tasks, which, which many of them just work during slavery as well, uh, this revealed the extent to which that revealed the limits of white people's care for black people, right? Like the racism was still very much a part of that society's in, endemic to it. And that puts us here into chapter six, education and liberation, black women's perspective. So in emancipation, many black people wanted to gain access to schooling because education would prevent slavery from happening, happening again, at least that's the idea. If you can educate people, they won't fall prey to uh, being enslaved, which is like, yeah, but at the same time, Davis is drawing these connections or these parallels between wage labor and slavery, saying that they are both the same as being a form of exploitation, but we know now that schooling is very much amenable to capitalist growth. It is a way to mold people for um, for working wage, uh, wage labor jobs to be productive workers. Now, beyond that, of course, black people did not just want education, they wanted land, and they, they wanted political representation, they wanted the right to vote. However, education would mean problematizing the racist idea that black people were less cognitively developed than white people. Efforts to educate black people by Frederick Douglass, Lucy Prince, for example, were met with much resistance, forcing black communities to open their own schools. White women who tried to teach black people like Prudence Crandall mentioned before, Mar Margaret Douglas, they were imprisoned. Schoolhouses were burned down. There was, uh, in the case of Mirtilla Minor, whose, uh, whose schoolhouse was burned down for trying to teach black children, black youth, black people, I think adults as well, uh, in her school, I think adults. In any case, um, in her school. And the, the, a lot of these people, like even these white people who are trying to teach uh, black children, they were, they were putting their lives at risk. Like they, they were very brave in all of this. Like really, like it's very, it's commendable. Like it's very, it's, it's amazing. Now the period following slavery saw a new kind of racism emerge where abolitionists were not thrilled with black people occupying the same places and spaces as them, as I mentioned earlier. Like they wanted slavery to end, maybe for not the best reasons. And so they still held racist beliefs where Southern states prohibited black education. For example, some of the most significant progress came when black and white women collaborated to try to uh, allow more and more black students into schools. And because this text focuses like a lot on the history, it doesn't get so much into segregation. Because that's not her focus. She's, like, she's really looking at this history, um, like a, a bit into um, into segregation. But like this went on for so long. Like segregation. Like so many people's grandparents lived in segregation. It's just wild. Like and the ripple effects. Like they're going to be felt for generations. Like you can't just undo it. And they're just the resistance to doing anything about it now on the part of policymakers, like, my God, it's, it's, I can't, it, uh, anyways, puts us here into chapter seven, woman's suffrage at the turn of the century, the rising influence of racism. 
So here she starts by recounting the friction between Susan Anthony, who's a white woman, and Ida Wells, a black, uh, black woman, where Wells thought Anthony prioritized white women in the suffrage movement. So Susan Anthony worried that including black women would push away other white women, where if the uh, suffrage movement started to represent black women, or included black women, racist white women who also wanted the vote wouldn't join their cause, and that would hurt the cause. So she reflects on the provenance of racism and segregation, that's Davis, of racism and segregation in late 19th century, not to mention all the lynching and mob attacks against black people. And it's like, like, of course, Susan Anthony is wrong. And like, this reveals the extent to which that a, a, a political project, like an activist project, has to always risk alienating oppressive elements within it, even if it means downplaying or, or undermining the project itself. Like, it's always a delicate balancing act, but otherwise it'll just be born into a cycle of oppression that's only going to continue that oppression or a new kind of oppression. And I don't live in some fairy land to think that, like, all oppression will just magically one day disappear, but it's about always being critical, always being vigilant to uh, to end oppression in any way, shape, and form. Now, one of the uh, arguments in the case for women's suffrage to obtain the right to vote was the was to point to women's literacy as a justification for their rights. So, lots of white women were like, you know, we're we're not stupid like we we know how to read and write like we're incredibly intelligent like we can make decisions we have opinions we should be allowed to vote the problem here was obviously the classist and racist idea that black people immigrants working class people didn't have the same because they didn't have the same education they then therefore shouldn't have the right to vote at least this was the idea that some white uh suff suffragettes were advocating for they're saying, we obtain the right to vote because we're intelligent. These other people are not intelligent, so therefore they shouldn't obtain the right to vote, which of course is just racist, and it contributes to these legacies of oppression. Now, it would make these people then, who were considered to be less intelligent, more ripe for capitalist exploitation because, you know, they couldn't defend themselves, at least ostensibly they couldn't argue uh, for their rights or anything. They didn't have political representation, which would make them very easily exploited by capitalist industry. And it was in this period in the late 19th century that we saw racist institutions and population separations emerge. And this very much still exists today in the early stages of segregation and also was a period of American imperialism in the name of profits, like America and the Philippines, I believe, and other foreign nations. And at the time, discourse emerged about resisting extending the vote to newly colonized people. Because if you extended it to them or to other people, then you'd have to then extend it to everybody, which white people did not want. So the suffrage movement, with Susan Anthony at the helm, they were at best indifferent to non-white women's struggles and their efforts to gain the right to vote. In fact, she, Susan and others, saw democracy and the extension of rights to people as a barrier to white women's progress. Like I said before, they felt like black men would oppress them 
And if they were to suddenly prioritize the experiences or black women getting the right to vote, then it would take away from their own struggles. Now, these disagreements, if I can reduce their severity by calling them disagreements, these were good business, right? You create conflict, suddenly large swaths of the population are more exploitable by capitalists. They're willing to work for less because they're experiencing vicious oppression. And this was all going on without necessarily acknowledging it because for Davis, and like I think this is a strong point, like clearly slavery had to end. Like <laughs> weird thing to even say. But what happened was that the capitalist alternative sold itself as the best possible alternative. And it could assume that status, which gave, which naturalized it, which made it seem as though it was the only alternative. Now, of course, there were labor strikes, there were labor movements to oppose it. But in any case, among the broad social body, it was a way by which people could actually exercise their newly attained freedom. And it was also a time with this growing atomization of people and with the growing use and development of science at the time, new kinds of racism and justifications for racism were emerging. Like if, if somebody was struggling, it was framed as their fault because of this new individualism. They've been freed, like in the case of black people. So therefore, they can't complain about anything. And if they are poor or oppressed, it is their fault. The emergence of science helped to justify, um, helped to justify racism by promoting ideas that there were just inferiority of races, and people who would not step up to the plate, or at least that's how they were described, that was justified by pointing to their race as justification for their lack of access to resources, their poverty, and so on. Now that puts us here into chapter eight: black women and the club movement. So women's clubs were very racist towards black women, primarily white women's clubs or that were comprised primarily of white women. There were, of course, some black women's clubs, but not as numerous, nor were they as powerful. And these white women's clubs were often used as places for, or maybe not often, but could be used for places for white women of a well-off background, likely married to someone in the bourgeois class or well-off men like lawyers, doctors, um, maybe university teachers and so on, they would be come together and this would be a place for them to talk about their experiences as domestic housewives, their experiences with their own kinds of oppression. And they felt like if they were to include black women, it would dilute those experiences and it would suddenly become about uh, black women. Not to mention the fact that they were just racist and didn't want to be around black women. But these white women's clubs, because they primarily reflected bourgeois women's interests and their experience, they didn't like the fact that emerging black women's clubs or clubs that included black women would also include women, even white women, from lower class settings. So it really reflects the extent to which these early women's clubs were representing the interests of a certain class and certain race of women. Now, in all of this, Davis is clear, though, that there were obviously uh, moments in which black women's clubs were problematic themselves because of what it took to organize people. You needed a voice. You needed resources. There were quite a few instances in which these black women's clubs were run by more well-off black women. And Davis points to the fact that these 
spaces might have been hostile, well, they were hostile in some cases, to lower-class black women. So here we see almost a reflection of the initial white bourgeois women's clubs reflected in these new and emerging black women's clubs. Didn't mean that they're, <laughs> what they talked about was the same, nor were their struggles the same. But in any case, it just reveals the extent to which for Davis, uh, class was not something that was largely considered to be uh, something worth considering when discussing oppression. And they served the function, too, of providing a space so that black women wouldn't have to be among white women, because white women didn't want that. They were worried their club would be, like, tainted if black women were to suddenly occupy their space. And so it helped to foster a sense of separation and segregation that would really continue from then onwards, which isn't to say that black women are like culpable in this, that this is all they could do, right? It's not like they could just join the white women's clubs, but this is kind of what was occurring beneath the surface or an unintended consequence of these emerging clubs. Now, there were like lots of infighting among the white women's clubs, among black women's clubs, like in the case of black women's clubs between Ida Wells, who we mentioned earlier, and Mary Terrell, who you know, they, they were fighting, you know, figuratively, uh, as to who would attain the helm, who who would be the leader of these clubs and who would run them, with Ida Wells' views being, you know, pretty radical, being, you know, abolitionist, acknowledging histories of oppression, similar, similarly with Mary Terrell, and it really being like, you know, coming down to these, like, smaller arguments, but nevertheless still significant and worthy of consideration. So it's not as though these spaces were immune from conflict. Conflict was very much embedded within them. And I wonder, because like this is certainly something we, we hear today, like if within like black organizations, if there are any issues, it's taken as a sign of um, that, that, uh, that community or that organization's failure to coordinate themselves. Like they are not able to effectively coordinate or cohere around a single cause. So therefore... They use that as a way, or commentators use that as a way to delegitimize that cause. I wouldn't be surprised if at the time the same thing was occurring, seeing these types of conflicts and using that as ammunition to say, well, therefore, they obviously don't care too much about their cause if they're more concerned about who's going to attain power, which is a superficial uh, drive, a superficial desire. But in any case, like I don't think Davis goes into that, but like <laughs> maybe something that had occurred. And that puts us here into chapter nine, working women, black women, and the history of the suffrage movement. So the first unions that emerged in the States uh, were very racist and sexist. Obviously, they would represent white men's interests, white working men's interests and their desires uh, to attain better wages, to attain better working conditions, and so on. And this is, you know, we see this in Marx as well, like it reflects white men's uh, experiences with wage labor. That is, the Marxist project largely reflects that. That's why it's important to include other perspectives. Now, similar to the way in which black women formed their own clubs when they weren't allowed into white women's clubs, black workers formed their own unions. They formed their own organizations to fight for their own increased wages, better working conditions, and so on. Now, obviously, white women 
union people like Susan Anthony and Elizabeth Stanton feared this would mean black men getting rights before white women. And this is something that repeatedly comes up again and again and again. This fear embodied by people who are marginalized, like white women being marginalized in their own way, using that to put down other marginalized groups, which is just so common. But, you know, it's also something that, you know, for me, I don't consider myself marginalized in any respect, given the great amount of privilege I experience. So it's like, kind of, I don't know, misplaced for me to be like, oh, we'll just all get along and just like work together. Like, obviously, I rec obviously, I recognize that it's not always so easy. And that these types of conflicts are very difficult to exercise away, to, to remove. Now, Davis suggests that these criticisms revealed how out of touch these women were, the idea that black men were just going to oppress them, believing that work, the working class women were prioritizing the right to vote when they were working, uh, I guess, their working life was a very threatening one, and they were working for nearly nothing. So for Davis, she's pointing to the fact that for many of these working class black people, their concern, not necessarily with the vote, reflected their immediate the immediate necessity for working conditions to improve. They, you know, they were just looking at the right to vote down the road. They're more concerned with feeding their families, attaining a living wage, and not being exploited in their daily lives. Voting, more of a, more of a dream to to occur later. And they and they just reflected that is these white uh, white women and people who were reactionary against black black people's union organization, they just reflected a bourgeois ideology, which clouded their view to properly understand that working class women and black women alike were fundamentally linked to their men by the class exploitation and racist oppression, which did not discriminate between the sexes. Here again is this thing, uh, this, I don't know, this homogenization of the experience of oppression under capitalism, as though all people experience it the same, suggesting that it did not discriminate between the sexes, when we know very well that women experience this much greater than men. And in the one of the later chapters, which we'll cover in the next episode, she discusses how women's domestic labor is ignored when it comes to evaluating productive labor, and how women are expected to take on all of these domestic chores, which once we, you know, once we're privy, we're aware of that fact, like she considers that, then I think it, you know, we can return to this and reflect and say, okay, well, we know that women are experiencing discrimination in a much more serious way in their working conditions than men. Uh, but anyways, she, but she goes on to say that men weren't the enemy in this dynamic. Instead, the boss, the capitalist was the enemy which is true to some extent, but it, it does the, this phrase, this sentence, does the work of really absolving men of culpability in perpetuating sexism, where even working class men are going to contribute to it. And, you know, coming from a pretty Marxist background, Angela Davis having studied under Marcuse, like this influence is clearly there. It, you know, trying to understand broad oppressive systems in a very neat way to say that, okay, we know where the enemy is. It's the capitalist. 
and that's it. When it can be both, you know, acknowledging that the capitalist is an oppressor, but so are men in so many ways, just regular everyday men in the values that they have internalized in, in the, their world, the sexist values they've internalized separate from capitalism, and how they work together to oppress women. And it demands interrogating both and evaluating the, the different histories and the different ways to respond to these forces of oppression. So for a long time, like mentioned earlier, accessing the right to vote would have just meant like voting for somebody who was in bed with the capitalists. Didn't matter who really, like I or like voting for people who wanted to return to slavery or who were sympathetic to that or voting for people who were just trying to push industrialization and the exploitation of wage laborers. And it wouldn't be until the early 20th century when political parties became an option that would actually try to advocate for working people, advocate to improve uh, working people's opportunities. And, you know, we really have unions to thank for this. Like, otherwise, we'd all still be working 12, 14-hour work days, six, seven days a week without any without any breaks really and like if it were purely up to the capitalists they would pay people as little as they could for as long as they could until the people just died keeping them at the absolute bare minimum in order to maximize profit for themselves while minimizing the wages that they give to their workers now davis suggests that unlike white men with white women Black men were largely much more supportive of black women obtaining the right to vote. White men resisted this a lot, whereas black men were like, this needs, you know, we can't have liberation without women also attaining the right to vote, much like abolition. So like W. Bede's voice, uh, Frederick Douglass, of course, were all very, there were important figures in this struggle, including women and women's experiences and women's needs in the fight for the right to vote. And yeah, that'll wrap this up, chapter 9, and we'll continue on with chapter 10 next time. I can't remember if I said at the beginning. I said we'll go 4 to 10. I guess, did I mean that inclusive? Well, I know what I meant, but I'm stopping here. <laughs> next time we'll take up from chapter 10, and that'll continue all the way to the end. Uh, until that point, let me know. If there's anything I, you know, if I mischaracterized anything Angela Davis said, um, you know, I got anything wrong or anything I omitted that, you know, it's really important to include. This text is very, it's historically dense, including lots of names, lots of events, lots of people, lots of, um, lots of dates. And my job here is not necessarily to just list off all these things that happen because that's can be boring to, to listen to. It's better when you're reading it and there's lots of description. Uh, otherwise that would, if I did it like that, it would take forever. And so, I hope that I'm giving you a good like narrative retelling that's clear and concise, but if there's anything I can improve, improve upon, I would love to hear about it. But yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. You can leave a review on a podcast platform if you want that permits you. I love to read them. I don't always get the, I, I can't always, I can't respond to them actually there. Uh, yeah, I love reading them and yeah, on that note, see you next week unless I drop an episode between this Saturday and next Saturday. You might be listening to this on like a Thursday though, whatever. Goodbye.